and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Dusty May is the head men's basketball coach at Florida Atlantic University. And you may have heard of Dusty and his program based on last season's success in college basketball. They won 35 games and they became a darling during the NCAA tournament when they actually made it to the final four in just an incredible run. And what's interesting about that run is Dusty took over the program five years ago. And since taking over, they have not had a losing season. But Florida Atlantic has had plenty of losing in their past. They actually have only been around since the 90s as a program. So Dusty is really in the process of building something. And there are high expectations for this upcoming season as well. So we'll talk about expectations in today's conversation. We'll also talk about why he decided to stay at Florida Atlantic. He obviously had other opportunities to go elsewhere, to go to bigger programs with bigger budgets and more opportunities to recruit. And Dusty decided to stay at Florida Atlantic. He loves it there. And he is really in the process of trying to build something special at that campus. And I wouldn't put it past him to be able to do so. In this conversation, we talk about the culture that he builds the staff that he wants to surround his players with. We talk about things like loyalty and teamwork and what it takes to build a consistent winner. So Dusty is an enthusiastic guy. He's going to talk about likability in this conversation, and he is one of the most likable people that I've had the good fortune of having on this podcast. So uh, here is Dusty May. Dusty, thank you for coming on the podcast. We've had some technical issues, but we're actually in person, which is refreshing and fun and exciting. I haven't felt the energy of somebody on this podcast for a while. I shouldn't say it like that. I felt the energy across the screen, 
like many of us, but there's nothing like in person. So even though we're going to be passing the mic back and forth, uh, hopefully people will enjoy this conversation. I know I will. Where I thought we'd start is obviously you have this magical season last year. And I was telling you earlier, I was actually in Boca as you all were competing in the final four. And it was remarkable to see the people just watching the games and stopping what they were doing and cheering you all on like they've been cheering you on for their entire lives. Uh, what was that experience like for you uh, personally and professionally as far as coming here and then obviously exceeding expectations from the community? Well, first of all, Brian, thanks for having me on. This is my first live podcast as well. I feel like we're doing maybe a Tim Ferriss show. Um, but it was strange because we went straight from Ohio to New York after the the first two round after the first two games to New York, and so we weren't aware of what was going on back here in Boca in South Florida. And as most people know, we're, we're a relatively new university, and everyone in this area went to school someplace else. And so they all follow other teams, their alums, their boosters of, of other uh, major sports programs. So we're always simply trying to. Uh, make this the hometown team for all these people that went to college somewhere else to start rooting for us simply because they spend part of their year here, they vacation here, or they, or they simply reside here now. And so we weren't aware of how many people were excited about FAU, even even a lot of those that weren't even, uh, you know, there's several FAU campuses. There's one in Jupiter, there's one in Boca. Uh, this is by far the largest, but most people weren't even aware that there was a, a, a prominent Division One athletics program in, in this community. And so, uh, you know, we, we heard from a lot of new people. We, we, we uh, generate a lot of buzz for the university. And, but it was, it was very, uh, it was cool to see the, the videos of the bars, restaurants, and, and literally uh, it looked like Mardi Gras at times in, in Boca Raton. And, and uh, if anyone's spent time in Boca knows that most of the time it's shut down by about 8 p.m. Yeah, and it was interesting. I was in Delray last night, Delray Beach, which I think is a little more lively. And it is interesting being in this community and, and seeing it. Obviously, everyone knows the weather, and it's a great place to live. I know people that raise their families here. Um, your decision to come back, uh, I mentioned before we started recording, Tobin Anderson, I was pretty blunt with him on the podcast when he came on, and he was pretty blunt with me, which I really appreciated. You know, he left FDU like the next day, and I said to him, you didn't even get to like celebrate this fully with your guys. Obviously, you go to the Final Four. Uh, we were even talking about Chris Caputo, who's also been on the podcast. I remember when Jim Laranega, you know, took George Mason to the Final Four, then ends up going to Miami. Uh, Shaka Smart ends up leaving VCU for Texas. But here you are. You decided to stay. Um, tell us about that decision and what went into that uh, for you, and, and why not go to greener pastures? There are a number of reasons, and, and I think at different times of our life and stages of our careers, we all want something different, and, and myself, I moved around a lot when we were young. My wife and I had young kids, and, and we bounced around and, and was very transient um, early in our careers, and, and finally having a place that kind of feels like home. Uh, we've been here for a while. Our boys are, are spread out now, but they feel like this is kind of home base. So number one, it was a, a family decision where uh, we're extremely happy. We've settled in. And as anyone knows, when you go through a long season, you're exhausted. And the last thing you want to do is think about moving, uh, taking another job, starting from scratch. And when, when our players expressed interest that they wanted to come back, it was uh, at that point the decision was made where I had no interest in even listening or entertaining in, in any other – having conversations about other jobs because I knew what I wanted and, and how happy that I and, and my family and, and staff, we were here. So um, a lot went into it, but, uh, you know, I, I think more than anything else, when you're professionally fulfilled uh, and then – Outside of basketball, your family is very happy in, in their situation. It's it's tough to uproot that uh, unless you're simply driven by money or to compete uh, in, in a certain league. And, and those aren't the things that make me go. So it, it was simple at the time. Um, I did know, though, that if I went down the road and, and, and entertained anything else, then I'm impulsive by nature, that I might have made an impulsive decision. Um, and I try to make sure all family and career decisions now are, are thought out well in advance with, with what we, with the information at hand. You mentioned money and playing at a certain league doesn't make you go. So what does make you go? I think all of us coaches, if, if you if were in it for the right reasons, want the same thing. Players that, that want to get better, that are extremely driven. And then there is a, a, a high ceiling here. There's upside and some, uh, 
non-power five schools, there's, there's a cap at, at where they can go. We feel like this university, this athletic department, our program, we're on the cusp of a breakthrough where there's a lot of room for growth. Uh, there's a lot of people jumping on board that want to help us become successful. So um, it, it just wasn't time. And I think that because of our, our potential growth, we're, we're going to be able to compete with a lot of uh, different programs uh, in, in today's modern game, which the NIL is extremely important. Um, the, the television package of the American Athletic Conference was a, a big part of it, where our guys are going to be on national TV a lot. And because our name became uh, synonymous with, with other good programs, we were able to get nationally televised games in, in Las Vegas, in Springfield, Massachusetts, in Orlando, and the ESPN events. So because of all those things, it, it just made sense to see how far we could take this thing. You mentioned uh, that your guys wanted to come back. The word loyalty gets thrown around a lot in sports and business, and we're seeing transfer portal and guys move around. And um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the word loyalty, what that word means to you, how you think about it. It's a great question, Brian. Growing up in, in this business, loyalty it almost becomes something that's ingrained in you where um, you agree with whoever's in charge no matter what. And, and, uh, I don't believe in that. The The word loyalty, um, I, I didn't expect. We didn't expect our guys to come back out of loyalty. We expected them to make the best decision for them, their families, and their futures, and while also taking into account their individual happiness in the moment. So uh, I do think they appreciate each other. They appreciate the staff. I know the staff is extremely appreciative of, of who they are every single day. So the word loyalty never really came came out of it. If, if a player decides to leave, we don't look at them as disloyal. Our job is we get paid to, put, to coach basketball, to coach basketball players, and, and we're going to do that regardless of who's with us. Um, obviously, when you have older, experienced, talented players, it's much more fun to coach the team that you have. But um, you know, we, we didn't expect them to come back out of loyalty and, and, and we didn't come, you know, we didn't want to come back here also because of loyalty. We wanted to come back because of the relationships and we felt like it was the right thing to do uh, for all of us. I value, it's interesting. I value loyal friends. Like I've got friends from my childhood that have always been there. I va- but, but like, I don't value the loyalty. I value the relationships and blind loyalty is dangerous and it's interesting because we hear words like family and loyalty used in sports quite a bit. And to me, those words are, uh, they're loaded. Like there's a lot that goes into those words. Um, for you, I, I, I'm curious cause I was doing research on you. And one of the things that I read about when you first took this job was almost like a, that you saw it sight unseen. Um, and so there was a lot here that you didn't realize was here. <laughs> um, but even more than that, it sounded like you had some imposter syndrome. Um, it sounded like there was like, Hey, like the quote I have here is I just committed career suicide. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I literally had a call today with 10 executives talking about imposter syndrome and every single one of them admitted on that call that, yeah, they have doubts that they can do the job that they're in and they don't necessarily express that outwardly or as outwardly as you have. Um, but they all admitted that it's a part of who they are for you. How have you managed that side of you? Um, and is the imposter different after taking a team to the final four? Well, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> um, as far as the imposter syndrome, I think it's, it's very, it's much more common than, than people realize. Um, if you get a really, if you get one of the best jobs, I think you're probably curious if, if you can do it as well as it needs to be done. And there's so much external pressure, there's internal pressure, but most importantly, uh, there's the pressure we put on ourselves to, to, do the, to, to be the right guy for the job, to make those who hired us correct in, in hiring us, and do a great job for those that we're coaching. So um, it, it's changed over the years where, where your insecure, I think my insecurities have changed from are you good enough to do the job to are, are you um, going to be able to, to do a good enough job to, 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 to I guess, to raise the level of, of success and expectations and, and the goalpost is always moving and, and we welcome that. But, um, you know, I, I think, and I, I didn't see it side unseen. I'd seen the best of Boca. I'd seen the, the beach. I'd seen the hotel. I'd seen the city. And then I saw main campus. And so everything, it, it was like a, a beacon uh, on the hill. And then all of a sudden we get to the, this, this part of campus 
and there was a pickup game going on. There was the facilities were in shambles because we had a new athletic director, we had a new athletic department, so nothing was set. Uh, and, and then even where we had the uh, the press conference, I mean, it just didn't look like the places I had been before. So it was almost like the the best part was was there, and then we saw the worst part. And uh, I think a range of emotions overtake you at that point. I mean, it's you're, a lot's changing when you go from that assistant to the head coaching seat, where a lot of people, uh, their livelihoods, their families, their careers, their their futures are are in your hands. Not that it's an you know an individual moment, but you, you have a lot more responsibility, and a lot more people uh, banking on you to make good decisions for everyone. So, um, I, I do think it's it's common though, much more. And and that's one thing. After that article, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. And after that, several coaches reached out, and even a few of them said, "I I took this job," and. I don't know how to get out of it. And so I, I just advise them, hey, take a deep breath, get a good night's sleep, make sure you get some sleep somehow tonight, and I promise you, you'll feel better tomorrow. There's a sense of like a desire to feel satisfaction or contentment or use the word happiness for your family staying. Uh, I mentioned a program that I worked with in San Francisco where they were a high school program and they just had a great year and when I came in as an intern, they were trying to meet their expectations that they had just created. They just had gotten to a level that the school had never gotten to before. And when I walked in the gym the first day, the kids were wearing t-shirts that said, satisfaction is the enemy of success. And at the time I was learning all this stuff on happiness and psychology and positive psychology, what leads to a fulfilling life or a happy life. And it was satisfaction and contentment and peace of mind. I mean, John Wooden's definition for success, peace of mind, knowing that I did the best that I could. And so I sort of talked to that coach who I had a ton of respect for about that shirt. I was like, man, like, I kind of think satisfaction is the goal. Like at the end of the year, I want to feel a sense of satisfaction, not just at the end of the year, at the end of every practice, at the end of every moment. Like, can we create moments of satisfaction or contentment or fulfillment? And what I started to realize was there's a distinction there potentially between satisfaction and complacency and complacency will kill us. If we're complacent with our health, if we're complacent with our learning, our growth, we're static. We don't, we don't continue to improve and grow and, and we start dying. But satisfaction, that feeling of fulfillment to me is success, whereas complacency is failure. And so you're coming off a historic year here and I hear you talking about contentment and excitement. How do you find that distinction between satisfaction and contentment and complacency? That's a great question, Brian. Um, first and foremost, I, I could never be complacent. I love to learn, to grow, and I would probably err on the side of, of doing too much as, a par, as opposed to staying static. And, and sometimes doing too much can actually backfire and, and, and take you uh, in reverse. Um, my wife is reading uh, Bono's book, the the U two singer, and and we're going for a walk, and or we're getting ready to go for a walk, and she's actually reading it in the car, and she says, you know, this this makes me think a lot of you, and I said, oh, because usually when she says something like that, it's it's not it's not in a, in a complimentary <laughs> way, and she said just the obsession, and he says if you're gonna be great at anything, you you almost have to be obsessed with it, it has to consume you. And I don't know if I'm obsessed, consumed, but I do know I, I do at night, if, if I don't have anything else to do, I want to watch a basketball game. I want to watch film. I want to go watch a game. If I'm laying in bed reading, I want to read about leadership or basketball. Um, I don't really desire to play golf or go fishing. I would much rather watch an NBA game or, or watch a, a yearly game or a, a, the USA team play. And so I don't know if it's, it, it's that, but I, I, the way I'm wired, I could never be content if I if I didn't have a team to coach I would be probably going out watching other teams practice and trying to because it's what I enjoy doing you know I I don't want to say it's who I am but I I love being a coach it's a big part of my identity because I have so much respect for not only the profession but the impact that my coaches had on me and and the impact that that my son's coaches have had on them and the impact that um, we can have and potentially have on so many people going forward. So um, I don't know uh, the difference between satisfaction, contentment, and, and all those things because they're all so interrelated and, and how we look at the world is, is, I guess, changes each of them. But there's no way I could ever be complacent. When I hear you talk about obsession, I think about I'm a father of two kids. My kids are uh, almost eight and almost seven. And the obsession with my work has become harder 
to pour into. I give you my book, like writing that book while having kids. It's like a mess, like just trying to find time to write. Um, you've got kids. Uh, your kids play basketball at a high level. How do you, or how did you navigate the obsession, uh, the late nights? And it's interesting as you were talking, I think we always say like, what keeps you up at night as a negative thing? I think what keeps me up at night are often things I'm really excited about and energized by. Um, but back to the, the kid piece, like how did you navigate your obsession for coaching uh, with also, I would assume, a desire to be a great dad? Well, fortunately, my wife uh, allowed us to keep irregular schedules and hours. And if I was going recruiting, I was taking one of my sons with me, even if they got back at midnight and, and were driving to a small town in Louisiana. That was part of it. Uh, I never lived, the furthest I lived from the gym anywhere in any city was three miles. Because that way she could drop them off with me. I could pick them up. I could go have dinner, get back, uh, get in the gym with guys, whatever the case I could get back and forth within five minutes. And so that was always uh, a non-negotiable for both of us. Um, and, and so they were always such a part of it. And uh, my wife, she worked uh, most of the years uh, before we were financially stable. Uh, and so the boys, we, we they just became part of it. And they would be in the gym with me. And they, they were, uh, I worked for great bosses. So the, the boys would be on the bus when we'd go have a scrimmage game on a Saturday or when we'd have a weekend road trip, a bus trip. The coaches I worked for allowed me to take one or two of the boys with me at all times. So it became where uh, we were able to share um, where this game had taken me. And it just became part of our, our lives. And, and now they want to go into coaching. Um, my wife discourages them daily. Uh, I tell them I don't care. I just really want them to find something that they love half as much as I love coaching basketball. And if they do that, then, then they, don't have to w they don't have to look towards Friday, Saturday, and Sunday every week. They're, they're excited for Monday, for Tuesday, for every month of the year. And, and they don't want, have to look towards uh, activities to uh, take them away from reality. And because... Uh, the, the, you know they were they grown up around it there's a lot of different avenues but I think right now they say they want to coach so hopefully that's a good thing that, that we've surrounded them around a lot of good role models why is your wife discouraging them from doing it I assume that she believes they would be as obsessed as I was uh, where you're you're always trying to find an edge your your conversations in the car or with other coaches trying to figure out better ways to do things find out solutions to your problems or making recruiting calls I think probably she would much rather have a, a, a normal life uh, but there's always trade-offs and uh, I, I've tried to push them towards officiating towards um, the front office jobs towards anything other than coaching and, and it, it just goes back to I think they see how much I love what I do and 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 so it, you know I, I think that is natural and they didn't see the hard times they didn't see the the years where you don't make any money and you're working all the time and, and life is a lot more difficult so they only see uh, the recent si success so there's probably a recency bias on their side but um, I, I think anytime you see your parents do something that they absolutely love to do you're probably inclined to at least give it a shot. Yeah, it's interesting as you're talking, the amount of podcast guests that I've had on who have stepped away from coaching, uh, whether it's Becky Burley, who I'm sure you ran into at University of Florida. Uh, we had Jessica Kern, who walked away from women's basketball, even like legends like Jay Wright, uh, who could have kept coaching or Muffet McGraw, who could have kept coaching or Bronco Mendenhall, uh, who is University of Virginia's football coach, who decided to step away after a great season. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of coaches say, you know what, uh, I'm good. In, in Maryland, Mark Turgeon stopped in the middle of the season. I think that was two years ago. Um, and so it, it's an interesting time for coaches, especially college coaches, because what I hear from a lot of them is, you know, the recruiting's gotten so difficult, the transfer portal, the NIL, it's like this perfect storm that they're experiencing. I get the sense sitting here with you that, you're really excited <laughs> to be coaching. And I got to tell you, like, I have a lot of conversations with a lot of coaches, as I'm sure you do as well, who are like, man, I think I might want to be at the pro level. I think I might want to go to the high school level. I have a good friend who's been a basketball coach in college for 15, 16 years, and he just walked away. Um, and so I'm curious for you, like, Go back to that drive or the motivation or, or why is it still a passion, especially now you've experienced like a, a magical season in many regards, like what is causing you to gear up for the season and with the excitement that maybe you had as a manager uh, at Indiana? 
Brian, I think you caught me on the right day. We had a great practice today, and our attitudes were amazing. But <laughs> other than that, obviously the, the pro level is is ideal because you're dealing with just basketball. But the flip side of this, how many lives are you really impacting? How much are you helping those guys outside of perfecting their craft and maybe making a little more money? I do believe the 18 to 22 year, that, that time frame is, I know how much I changed, how much we grow, change, evolve. And, and even my sons being in college, I appreciate their coaches because they still want to coach after going through it. And it's difficult and, it, and it's a sacrifice. And your friends are studying abroad and they're going to concerts and they're doing this and they're doing that. And you're getting up early for practice or for conditioning. And so um, I'm aware of all that. But in, in the NIL is a challenge and the transfer portal is a challenge. But um, I do think we coaches spend a lot of time complaining and there's there's no perfect profession. There's there's challenges. There's obstacles in, in anything that we do. And and if the NIL and the transfer portal went away, there would be something else to complain about and and act as if that was something that, that kept us from being unhappy. Um, as long as as we're surrounded with with a great staff who's committed to to helping our players, and as long as our players are committing are committed to to being uh, the best they can be, they enjoy working, they enjoy the 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 togetherness that a team gives them, then it'd be very difficult for me to be unhappy. Now, if if we had a, a group of coaches that were about themselves, and we had players that were only in it for themselves and their own uh, personal ambition, then I'd probably feel differently. But the word culture is thrown around a lot. Our environment, the people that are in our building, are so much fun to be around, and there's such a, a, a camaraderie that I don't think an NIL or a player going into the portal or anything would spoil what we have uh, because that's such a small piece of it. It's interesting you mentioned the pros. Um, I've had many conversations with some of the best minds, especially in basketball, uh, front office people. If I were to own a basketball team tomorrow... I would put a lot of money into hiring a great general manager who would hopefully then hire a great head coach who would hopefully then combine with the general manager to hire a great staff. And I think I didn't realize that until I got really inside organizations on how much it starts with that general manager and then the ability to bring in a great coach and then build a great staff. I think so often we see the players and obviously the players end up dictating winning and losing probably more than anything, but you don't control so much of who comes in the door, especially at the pro level. It's a draft, it's free agency, it's trades. And it's interesting. There's a lack of investment that I see on at the pro level of how do we develop our, our front office? How do we develop our staff? How do we continue to grow them? And it's backwards from what the business world does. You know, you have the C-suite in the business world. They invest in constantly. And they're constantly finding ways to try to improve their C-suite. And yet at the professional level, and you could take any sport, they're always pouring money into finding talent, scouts. I mean, how many scouts will come here, you know, to watch your kids there? But then they're not scouting for staff. Um, and... When I heard you talking, I heard you say, like, we need to have a great staff. And to me, that creates the culture. Uh, and then, of course, the players evolve the culture and they make it theirs. And then every year it's probably somewhat different. Um, can you talk about how you think about putting together a staff? Because I think it's probably relevant beyond sports as far as what you look for. How do you recruit? How do you assess for a talented staff? Um, what are you looking for as you build your team? The first quality, I'll, I'll say attribute, that I look for is likability. And uh, if they're moody, if they, you don't know what you're going to get every single day, then it would be, it'd be difficult for me to work with them. Um, obviously, you have to, to try to hire guys that have been around success or you've worked with before or been around successful programs because the, the feeling that you have of, of being with a winning organization, you're, 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 it, it, there are usually some traits that um, – are pretty consistent with with the teamwork with the the personality you know just there's so much goes into winning and, and you, you want to be around people that have been around winning programs and so and usually they bring an, an interesting dynamic to the equation um, but I don't look at it as, as like most people do even the loyalty piece I think we should all be loyal to the program uh, you're not loyal to me I'm not loyal to you we're all loyal to the same thing towards our mission and the the knowing you in advance I, I've always felt like 
it's the character piece. And whether I know you or not, there has to be someone that vouches for your character, that you're a great human being and you're about the right stuff. And then all the other details, obviously it's, it's more time consuming if you have to uh, teach your way. But once again, if you bring in a great person, then they're going to watch, observe, and they're going to be self-aware to kind of fill in the holes. And, and that's one thing I prided myself on as an assistant of always going in and just looking at what the staff, I felt like the staff needed at that time and said, you know what, I'm really going to dive into that and try to fill that hole based on what the veterans assistants are doing. So um, we have, uh, I, I guess, a way where we um, are always evaluating everything we do. So we change a lot, but um, there's, there's no selfish ego in, in our, in our offices or in our suite. And, and that's a big part of why we we're able to be successful in, in, in my opinion last year. Now, obviously the athletic director here was a big part of your desire. I'm assuming to come here. There's some connection there. Can you talk about, I don't, we could call it managing up or partnering or however you think about that. Once again, if I go to the pro sports, you look for alignment with the ownership, the general manager and the head coach. There are very few organizations that have alignment across the board there, but the ones that do, you see them have sustainable success, in my opinion. Not too far from here, the Miami Heat come to mind. Um, like They have a culture. They know exactly who they are. They know exactly what they're looking for. And I think it starts with the synergy with Mickey Harrison, Pat Riley, and Eric Spolstra. Um, and if you really like study the great organizations beyond a transformational player who obviously can come in and completely change the fortunes of a franchise, and we're all aware of that in pretty much every sport, if you look at consistency and sustainability, uh, it usually there's a sense of stability, but there's also um, alignment would be the word that I'd say. So talk about what you've seen throughout your career. And I'm assuming, you know, Coach White's brother was someone who you were probably excited to work with. So talk about partnership and, and alignment. Well, Brian, our athletic director here was an associate athletic director for us at Louisiana Tech. And I saw him at that time, that part, uh, that, that stage of his career doing tickets, uh, doing the pregame promotions of handing out pizza to the students to get them at the games. Um, and, and in addition to him consuming a couple of the pizzas himself <laughs> during the games. So I knew Brian, I knew the family. And then obviously uh, the appreciation of, of to him for believing in that, that I could lead this program and, and make the decisions uh, to lead this program. But um yeah, obviously the the trust, the communication, the the alignment are all extremely important. The way I, I think the the most unique thing about us is we can be very very straightforward and blunt and honest with each other. There's never any games. It's this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'd like. These are what the expectations are. Whatever it is, there's just a real simple open line of communication, and we're real with each other. And if if he says we there's no way we can do that, or we might be able to make that happen, there's always just and and I do think his leadership style is very unique that he never ever over promises. Uh, he's much more likely to underpromise and overdeliver, and I appreciate that because, uh, as someone that that that's a coach, if if you say that we're going to get this or we're going to get that, then I'm immediately going to start using that in recruiting, and this is going to be a part of the program going forward. So, um, I, I do think that that uh, prior relationship has helped because we both know each other as people before he was my superior or we were coworkers or whatever you want to call it. So it, it, it's helped our relationship that there's never any um, stuff in the background. It's always just very, very direct. I've heard this. I've seen that. This is what I'm thinking. And, and, it, and it's a very uh, two-way street. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about like overpromise and underdeliver, and I'm thinking about how much you have overdelivered. And I say you, meaning the entire program. And then I'm thinking like, okay, so now this bar is raised. Um, how do you think about expectations? Like, wh what does that word mean to you? Um, do you talk about, hey, we could win it all this year? Um, do you say, hey, let's just focus on the process? Uh, I've heard different approaches to that. Um, I was watching Hard Knocks with the New York Jets and Coach Sala, who seems like the guy that I would want to play for. Um, you know, he was owning it with the Jets. He was like, yeah. Where we, this is where we want to be. This is exactly where we want to be. Let's, let's go. Like, he's like, I love what he said. He's like, I'm sick of people saying that we're hard to play against and that's it. <laughs> like, no, we want to kick your ass and you know that we were hard to play against for you. I'm sure teams were looking at you like Florida. Hey, you guys are hard to play against and 
you beat us, right? Um, so establishing that last year, I think you guys won 35 games. Um, it changed probably. All right, now no one's going to look at their schedule and be like, oh, yeah, um, they're just going to be hard to play against. Uh, how do you think about the communication to your team and your program as, as the bar gets raised here? Well, we spend a lot of time trying to read the room and tailor our messaging to what the team needs. And it, it's... It's tough because if you study the best, you have Belichick who refuses to even speak of championships. It's it's the next down, it's the next practice, it's the next walkthrough, whatever it is, it's always the next thing. And then you have Pat Riley down the street who I think a lot of us coaches idolize. And everything is about the championships. The the imagery, when you walk onto the court, it's it's all the champions and the, the world championship trophies and whatnot. And so it's it's not as if there's a right or wrong answer. I think with us, we're trying to gauge, do the long-term expectations cause us to be stressed and have anxiety and not play at our best? Or does it motivate us uh, in, in, to get in the gym, to work a little bit harder, to be a little more focused in film? And so those are the things. I think every team is different. Every coach is different. By nature, I just want to have a good practice today. I'd love to see some guys in here after hours shooting, working on their game, doing homework, uh, things like that. But um, I don't. I don't really care about the Final Four. I don't think about it. Um, the coolest part of the Final Four for me was walking on the court for shoot-around, for practice, and, and seeing that big gym. Other than that, um, I, I got most of my satisfaction personally during the run of seeing our players and their families and the joy it brought so many people together, the people here in Boca, the FAU students. Uh, because for me, I, I feel almost as much joy with, with a great workout in the spring. So uh, by nature, 100% um, process-oriented. The, the outcome is, is not what, what drives me personally, but um, obviously it, it's, it's made a lot, our, all of our lives uh, different. When you bring up Bill Belichick, I think of how he prepares. And you know, I'm, I know enough about football. I love the NFL. I love following it. Uh, every week, a new defense and you don't know what they're going to play. And he's famous for we, we game plan week to week and we're going to bring a new defense. As I was preparing to talk to you, um, you all change defenses. You play multiple defenses and I've, you know, I've been in a lot of different gyms, high school, college pro, and I've never understood why teams don't play multiple defenses. Um, cause to me football, which doesn't get everything right. And I love different things that you can steal from different sports. But to me, like the game is set up for the offensive team to have an advantage in the NFL. The defenders can't touch them. Like cornerbacks, I don't know how they do what they do. I can't even cover my eight-year-old when he starts moving. Um, and so they're reactive by nature and they're at a disadvantage as soon as the ball is hiked. And so to me, the ability to create confusion or difficulty or chaos in the NFL is like the whole game uh, on the defensive side. And yet I watch every Sunday and you see teams that just stay with their base package. They do what they do and they believe that their guys are going to win out. And that may work to your point earlier, different strokes for different folks. When I talk to basketball people, I always say to them like, I mean, I didn't play at a high level, but anytime a team would press or throw a zone or box in one or do a junk defense, I put my quotes up for junk defense. It's like, those were the defenses that I hated. <laughs> it's like, and yet I see so I mean, you asked where I went to college. I went to Syracuse and Jim Beheim is an absolute legend. And as a fan, you'd watch them sit in the two, three zone and, and, to me, their best years were actually when they pressed uh, and they used to press and then go back into the two, three zone. So that was a long winded way of saying, talk about your philosophy um, as far as adaptability, defense um, and creating chaos, havoc, whatever you want to call it on that side of the ball. Everything begins and ends with what do you hate being done to you? And defensively, we, we try to brainstorm and figure out all the nuances of the game that we hate it, especially as, as a head coach. Most head coaches have to be offensive coaches. They have to have the board. It's just part of um, the requirements of the job. And so as, a, as an offensive head coach, what do you hate being done to you? What do you hate to see? And shouldn't we try to replicate as much of that as possible? If we hate to see it and it causes us to be confused, 
distressed, uh, spend too much time preparing for it, then shouldn't we try to implement that into what we do? And now the flip side of it is, is how much can you, how much of it can you do without contradicting uh, your habits that your players already know and know well, because the game are unlike football, our game is happening really fast and continuous. And obviously with the no huddle and the hurry up offense, there are some moving at much more continuous than, than in the past, but our game is so free flowing that anything that we do, we want to make sure that it doesn't contradict what we're, what we're good at in our daily habits. And if it's something that we can add, uh, we can tweak in addition to what we're good at, then we will. But it usually just begins and ends with, man, what do we hate being done to us? You mentioned daily habits. What are some habits? You mentioned culture earlier. If we were to walk into the gym, the practice, let's just put a imagery toward the practice that went well today. What are the habits that you're creating and what's the culture look like if I were to enter a, a practice at FAU? Well, we've we've had a lot more people watching our practices now with, with the last year's success. And some of the things that we've heard them say is, is our guys look like they're having a lot of fun, even though they're working hard. There's not much stoppage. It, it seems very efficient where uh, we try to ha have as many players doing something productive as possible while they're in there. We don't go very long, uh, comparatively speaking. Um, but the, the body language, the, the environment, uh, those are the things that, that I know that make me, whether the shots go in or not, I don't really know our percentages until I look at the stats. I don't know our turnover rate until I look at the stats. So usually when I walk off the floor, it, it's usually based on how is our energy, how is our camaraderie amongst each other. For example, when we made a mistake, did we point fingers and blame or did we quickly huddle and figure out the solution to the problem so it doesn't happen again? Uh, we don't punish them if they miss a layup. We encourage them to be creative, to, to beat the best. So uh, we're always thinking the end in mind with everything that we do. And uh, But I, I think more than anything else, uh, as a, a guy that played one year of Division II basketball and then was a student manager, I, I would be very disappointed if our guys didn't think practice was enjoyable most of the time. And, and I know uh, that contradicts a lot of the, you know, where I came from, where, where practice was a time to get better. You're not supposed to enjoy it. It's, it's work, it's difficult. I think you can do both because there is joy in the work. And uh, we, we, we talk to our guys a lot about if our happiness is derived on those 30 to 35 games a year, then you're probably not going to be very happy because you're not going to play well every game, even if you're one of the star players. And there's 300 and plus days that you're going to be doing something related to basketball. So we try to make the, the daily work, uh, the, the relationships that are being developed, the teamwork the, every single day. We try to uh, make sure that, that we define our happiness through those things. You mentioned happiness, work ethic, and it's clear that you love to learn. I mean, before we started recording, uh, I handed you my book and you said, oh, I was just going to ask you for book recommendations. And then you talk about reading about leadership and and we talked about trillion dollar coach and you mentioned Bono and, and reading about him and learning about him. You come from humble beginnings, uh, family, I think on your dad's side, coal miners, uh, parents divorced. Uh, you've talked about your mom having a big impact on your life. I think you were the only one to graduate or go to college, some, something of that nature. Where did you become such a learner? Where did that come from? Where did that stem from? Where did that start? Well, I've always been curious. I mean, I think a lot of young boys are curious. And, then, and as, as I grew into uh, being a man, I was always curious about basketball and sports. And then when I went to college, uh, I, I played one year, like I said, and then I went to Indiana. And all the guys I was around that were extremely intelligent, that came from great families, and you know their, their parents were judges and, and successful businessmen and whatnot, the one commonality was they, they all read. And so when I was probably 20 years old, I, I, I dove into reading and, and how much I enjoyed reading as, as a hobby. And from there, I realized, and, and Mike Davis at Indiana gave me a lot of confidence when, when I had to start speaking in public that, you mean, you, you know what to do. You read all the time. Your, your vocabulary is fine. Just go somehow try to put the thoughts in your head uh, into words. And, and so... Um, I think all those things rolled into one, and but but most importantly, the the most successful people that I knew were were readers, and so it, it became simple. And even uh, a friend of mine who um, I've got to know through this run, I, it was was speaking at a seminar recently, 
And one of the teachers asked, how do we get our, our kids to read more? And, and he said, well, you know, at teachers, they're around them six to eight hours a day. As parents, if they see you read, then they're probably going to read. If it's part of your daily routine, when, if you're watching Netflix, they're probably going to end up watching Netflix. So it's just like everything else, you model behavior. And I believe the people that I emulated it and looked up to were those that read. And so I think it, 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 it always boils back down to model leadership and modeling behavior. You're further ahead of me in raising kids. And you mentioned curiosity right off the top there. If I think of like what are the gifts that my, I would want my kids to have, kindness, curiosity, integrity, um, like those are pretty foundational. Um, how have you seen either from parenting or coaching ways in which you can spark curiosity rather than smother it? Well, the, the modeling behavior is, is always going to be first and foremost. Um, I think asking questions, trying to uh, share your curiosities. If, if you're watching a documentary on something, maybe try to include your kids into watching it with you. Um, we play games. We, we compete with each other. Um, I'm speaking family, uh, our, our family lives, but, but uh, it's a great question. I, I think it's, it's ingrained in who we are, but also always trying to get better. And, and I think a lot of coaches have always kind of just leaned on what they know and we're going to do this and this is our practice plan and not change. And there's nothing wrong with it, doing the same thing every day. Um, I know my attention span won't allow me to do the exact same thing every day. I need different. I need change. I need uh, different environments. And, and so um, I don't know how you, I guess, teach that to a younger generation other than just being extremely curious and, and, and trying to learn yourself. Yeah, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. Um, and I don't have a great answer, but I'll tell you, I coach an under nine soccer team and the amount of times where we're trying to practice and kids raise their hands and ask us when we can scrimmage or, or when the game is or what color jersey are we wearing. And one of the kids in particular who I know very well and I'm very close with his parents, like I have to have conversation with him about when to be curious because I don't want to just smother it like, I think it's great that he's asking questions, but God bless our teachers who are in there every day dealing with kids, constantly asking questions and sometimes stopping them from getting anything done. And even with my kids are at an age where they are just so curious. And I think we're all born with curiosity, but I think our systems and our structures don't always allow the space for us to grow into it and develop it. Um, and then I think about our educational system and how you have to have the answer. And if you get the answer wrong, there's not like a retest for most situations. You just sort of move on. And so I've had teachers on here. One of our previous guests, Matthew Dix, who's a teacher of fifth grade, we talked about curiosity because I think sometimes our structures to execute and to execute quickly, we don't always have space and time to explore curiosity. And I think there's a time and place, right? Like there's a time in practice to ask questions and learn. And then when maybe you're in the middle of a game and we're trying to like, execute there are times to ask a question and there's times where we just need to trust in it um but it's something that i've wondered a lot about i've got a framework i think about is curiosity before conviction and if we have the curiosity then our convictions will probably be more powerful i want to go back to your kids real quick because my kids are entering the age where they're starting to play sports at a decently competitive level and the things i'm seeing are quite alarming um one of my friends is a guy named david epstein who wrote a book called range which if you haven't read it highly recommend that book and we have these conversations all the time because what david found in his work is like there's great power in not specializing um your kids are playing basketball at a division one level you've probably witnessed what you've witnessed in the floor at a D1 level, but then you probably saw some things as they were coming up and play AU and all this sort of stuff. So I'd love to get your temperature on the state of youth sports um, as a father and also as a coach. Well, I, I, I agree with you, Brian. It is alarming because you see the parents' behavior at these events. And um, I always prided myself on on being the parent that stayed out of the way that was a parent and not a coach because – after speaking with several friends that went through it, I know how difficult it is to be a coach's son. If you have, if you're fortunate enough to be successful as a coach and, and coach at a, a division one level or even division two level, then it's difficult for your kids because the expectations for them to be great um, are just are pretty common. And so I, I read uh, and I recommended to any parent that asked Mike Matheny's book, The Matheny Manifest, and it's essentially. Um, 
a, a manual on how parents should act. And, and, and even the parents that try to do the right thing and say they're about to support and they're there to support their kids, the first question is, is typically how many points did you score, how many stats, this and that. And, and so that's the message, you know, whether, you know, that's what the, the kids, our kids feel when that's your question. So, um, it's, it's difficult because we all want what's best for our kids and we all want our kids to be the best and the star and it's human nature, right? I mean, it's as adults, if we have 10 million, we want 20 million. It's how our brains work. So we always want more. And so I felt very fortunate that I grew up and, 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 was aware that most of the good players that I coached, uh, a big reason why was because of, of their parents. And so the questions were always, are you the hardest playing? Did, were you the best teammate? Did, did you have a blast playing? Uh, those, those types of things. And let them know that I didn't care how good they were. I wanted them to play harder than anyone else and with the most passion of anyone on the floor. And I wanted them to be great teammates. And anything other than that, I, I didn't care. Um, I wasn't going to make them get up at 6 a.m. and come and work out, but if they want to work out at 6 a.m., then they need to, you know, wake me up and say, hey, Dad, can we go get some shots? Because I'm not – what I love to do doesn't have to be what they love to do. If they want to do it, I'm here, but it's going to be on their terms. And at times I, I question myself whether I should have pushed them even more and encouraged them, but I wanted it to be their thing. I didn't want my thing to have to be theirs, but I do know that because of my profession, I've been a, a, a much better sports parent than, than those that, that uh, you know, are, are consumed with the wrong things with their kids. Because most of our kids, they're not playing professionally. They're probably not even going to play for scholarship. And, but the lessons they learn every single day through athletics can help them become much better citizens, much better employees, employers, everything, because of what sports teaches us organically. Did your boys consider playing for you? It, w it was never really an option. Um, number one, we wanted them to get away and have their own experiences and, and decide who they want to become in, in those formative years. 18 to 22, you decide who you want to be, who you want to emulate. And I wanted them to, to go and be around other coaches, other assistant coaches, other head coaches, and um, develop their own personalities. They've been around me my entire life. They've been around our program. So they know me. They know the guys I've worked for, I've worked with. And so it was more just them getting away, but not too far because we want to see them regularly. Uh, we, we definitely encourage them to try to stay as close as possible without being at home. And we just wanted them to play for good people. More than anything else, we, we didn't care about where, what, uh, who they were with every single day was, was the most important thing by far. Go back to their age. So let's call you 20. Um, and it sounds like you were pretty gung-ho on being a coach yourself. Um, what do you know now that you didn't know then about coaching? How much it changes uh, yearly. Uh, by the decade, um, it, it's it's not basketball. You're you're coaching life. You're coaching people, and it, it's not a job. It, it's it's you know I hate to say it, but it's who we are. Like every every minute uh, of my day that's not consumed with my family is is thinking about uh, something related to our team. And 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 I wish I could turn it off, but I, I really can't. And um, you know it, it it's it's a lifestyle. Uh, at that age, I mean, and, and even I think back to at 19 when I decided to quit playing and there was just this void and, and even hole in my life where I questioned everything about, man, I put so much into this. I sacrificed uh, everything. I sacrificed the weekends. I sacrificed this. And, and what did I get out of it? That's what I thought at the time. And so you see all these different young young people at different stages of their lives and and I think the, the proudest moments have been when, when some of our players who had no interest in coaching come in and say, you know what, coach, I, I think I want to coach. My parents, uh, they, they want me to go to med school or they thought I was going to be this or they thought I was going to be that. But I, I really see how much fun you guys have every single day. And, and this is something I think I want to explore and, and do. What do you think? And I, I, I once, just like my kids, I make sure they understand the downside that it, you may not ever coach at this level. You're doing it to help people. You're doing it because you love uh, coaching ball, coaching people, and, and being in a gymnasium every day versus office space or whatever it is. What part of coaching do you love? Do you love game day? Do you love practice? Do you love film? Is there a part that you feel most alive? Yeah, the, the, the film, I, I love watching film. I love practice. I love individual workouts. Uh, the games are okay. <laughs> um, 
you know, it's just our, our game is so intimate and, and, and our locker room is intimate and our offices are intimate. The, the relationship piece where uh, we have uh, such a strong connection and then you go out and, and the performance piece is the hard, is the most difficult. It's, it's the most dif- difficult part for everyone um, because there, there's players that, that don't practice well and, and can go out and just perform. And then there's players who practice great and because of maybe anxieties or, or stressors or whatever the case, they don't play well. So um, I've tried, as I've gotten older and got a few years under my belt, um, I've, I've tried to, um, I guess, go into it where I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to do everything I can to help and not hurt. And so I feel like I'm still uh, growing and, and learning and, and improving every single year. I just flash back to uh, a friend of mine who's a professional coach, uh, and I worked with his team. And I remember I would see him on game days, and they'd be like, have fun today, coach. And he'd look at me, he's like, this isn't fun. And he is the most fun-loving, you mentioned likable. Like, I saw him at a combine, you know, work, the work the entire hotel like everybody knows this guy and he's one of the most likable people with everyone you know you walk in the locker room how's your family how you doing everything good like he's got an energy to him you the two of you would have a blast together and yet on game day and he played at the highest levels uh in his sport and yet on game day he's like this is not fun um and i don't think he was like that as a player i think as a player it was way more fun, but there's something about the coaching that was exhausting for him. Um, and I can see you nodding your head for those that don't get to experience it. They might look at you on game day and think that's the fun part. That's the chess match. And, you know, I think of Jay Wright, like saying bang as, as Chris Jenkins makes a three from way downtown and looking like he's so cool. But the coaches I've been around game day is exhausting for a lot of them. Um, is there anything you do? Cause I'm seeing you nod your head. Is there anything you do to make sure you talk about joy a lot in today's conversation? Is there anything you do to make sure you're coaching with joy? Yeah. I think just trying to be self-aware of, of how my body language, how my attitude uh, affects our group. Uh, just, it comes with the position. And so absolutely the, the game days, it's, it's difficult to eat on game days. It's and and, uh, you know, I, I'm not at a job that has uh, typical, high pressure expectations because of, you know, every job is different. And so even with that, it's, it's still the internal pressure of, I I think once again, you go back to, we all have our own imposter syndrome or personal anxieties of, I would never want to be the reason why my team wasn't successful, why our team didn't succeed. And so you, you just, you're, you're trying to make sure that everything is covered. So you simply don't let your, your guys down. And, uh, the flip side of that is 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 trying to convince them that they don't have to 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 wear that burden that they have each other and whoever's not whoever is down they're going to get picked up and I I will say this the better team you have the less stressful it is because you do feel like your guys are going to pick you up if you're not at your best because we make mistakes too and if you have a really good team typically the mistakes go unnoticed. We'll start to wind down. Uh... I have a client who works in sports and coaching and th- we talked about in our last session the how much focus there is on pregame routines. Um, not just for the players, but also for the coaches. What time you go out, what time you bring the, ki- the team back in, uh, when are you eating, there's all these pregame routines. And what this coach was telling me is postgame is where they have lost their way. And they bring the game back to their their home and bring it into their family and what that does to their health and their relationships. Have you changed anything from a post-game routine um, to make sure that you're not taking that obsession too far and crossing a line that is not healthy uh, for you and the people that are around you? No, Brian, my... my- post-game routine and, and and to be honest my pre-game routine is not that strict and, and I even encourage our guys we have our set things that we do but I encourage our guys to really pay attention to, to when their bodies feel great what did they do when they're at their best do they need a nap or do they not need a nap do they need to meditate do they whatever it is because we're all wired so differently and we're individuals that are functioning within a team 
And so the pregame, everything is different for everyone. I have my routines. I like to take a walk to burn some anxiety. Um, I need some type of 15 or 20 minute nap just to shut my brain down to kind of reboot it. Um, I've tried to sleep in. I can't sleep in on game days. I wake up at almost the same time, no matter what, but post game, since I've been in coaching and, and, and part of it is I started in video is that immediately after the game, it, it's, you begin cutting it up and, and deciphering and, and trying to really figure out what happened, good or bad. And so that's always been part of my routine. And I don't think I could go to sleep without watching and at least having an idea of what's going on. Cause I believe my brain would still be working, uh, curiously trying to figure out what happened during the game, but also because uh, I feel like a big part of my job is, is teaching. And if, if our guys want to come in the next morning because they, they want to, they want feedback, I want to have it ready for them. And so typically the night of the game, I break it down, uh, individually and in themes. And then the next morning, then I'll watch just the offense and just the defense and kind of compartmentalize it. So I, I'm looking at it from an, even a different camera, camera angle or a different perspective, because our game as crazy as it seems. I'm sure football's the same way. You can look at it from our bench and then look at it from the, the fans side of the gym across the way. And it's, there's, there's two different things going on. And so I believe it helps me communicate to our players better. It helps me see what they saw when I can look at the game from different angles, from different perspectives, and even from a different uh, level of fatigue and, and frustration. And so that's, that's my routine after the game. Uh, we don't ever go out for wings afterwards, win or lose, because it, it's not something I think if I was sitting there, I wouldn't be able to, my family wouldn't be able to enjoy my company because I'd be thinking about what I needed to be doing. And so that's just kind of from the game until the next morning is, is, a, is a time where I, I think, uh, especially my wife, she understands. And, and sometimes it'll be an afternoon game and, and uh, we'll do, you know, we'll grill out or whatever. And then she understands that I'm just going to go, I have to watch that film before I go to sleep or else I'm not going to be able to sleep. Yeah, it sounds like it gives you closure and you need that closure. Otherwise, you're just going to ruminate on it. All right, this is my last question. A lot of times when I say it's my last question, there ends up being something else that happens. So I apologize in advance if that happens, but I'm not sure that there will be because this is a pretty like finite last question. Um, I had on Ryan Poles on the podcast. Ryan is a Chicago Bears general manager. And I asked Ryan, would you rather essentially go to the Super Bowl 10 times or just win one? And I think about you. Uh, you just went to the final four and you're in a position potentially to go back next year and you sign this 10 year contract. So if we think about it in, in terms of your situation, if you had the chance to go to the next 10 final fours every single year, but you don't win or you can win a championship during that span, but not go to any other final fours. Does one of those resonate more with you than the other? I would go to 10 straight final fours without blinking an eye and, and, and not cut it down. And, and it's, it's the hunt, it's the chase. And, and if we're at 10 straight final fours, that means that, that I'm coaching, we're coaching really, really good guys who are competitive, who are driven, who have um, aspirations of playing beyond college. And, and those are the things that make it enjoyable. It, it's, it's only one team out of 360 they get gets to leave after the cutting the nets down on a Monday night in in April. Um, would I love to do it? Absolutely, and, and we would chase it. But I know if you have ten really good years, you're in the hunt, you're in the mix, you're in that chase. Versus taking a couple years off of of being in it. Um, so once again, I th I think that it, it's like the the former players. You know, I I don't think Carl Malone and John Stockton had any less of a career because they played in an era with Michael Jordan where he won all the championships, and so it's the joy of, of competing. It's the joy of the work. It's the joy of doing it together. Those are the things that, that I love much, much more than, than being the only one standing at the end of the season. It's interesting because sports so often is a zero sum game. You either win or you lose. And for fans, it's often that. Uh, but if you really think about it, the memories you create, the experiences you have, you mentioned the Utah Jazz, I think of the Buffalo Bills and how often they went to the Super Bowl and they just couldn't break through. And we call them losers and we say they're not successful. And yet they absolutely were successful. And it, so I think it just is a, it, it's a matter of how you define success. And, you know, and I, of course, another question is game. Like I find teams are either building, they're contending or they're sustaining success. 
And for you all, I mean, you probably got here and it's like, we need to build this thing. And then it's like, hey, we can contend, right? And now it's like, all right, how do we sustain uh, and play at a top 25 level or whatever the, the rank is? And I would imagine that changes your mindset a bit while still trying to make sure you do the things consistently that have helped got you get you to where you're at. Um, all right, that was the last question. We will close. This has been a lot of fun. Um, sorry for the tech issues. I usually am like very prepared on this, but I was rusty. And it's, it's funny that it's now easier to record these over a video screen because when I first started doing this almost seven years ago, it was brutal. Like Skype, FaceTime were terrible. And, and now it's actually easier, but I'm so glad that I got to spend time with you, be around you. Um, and hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. If people want to continue following FAU, is Twitter X the best place to do so? Is there somewhere else uh, that they can, they can do that? Where's the best place to follow them and also follow yourself? Well, Twitter um, is probably the the social media site I'm on the most. It's Coach Dusty May, and then FAU Basketball has an account that that's much more up to date than than my personal uh, handle. Um, fortunately for us, we're in a business where the Final Four is almost like a plateau. The, there's there's certain uh, arms that have done great job marketing. The NBA, for example, almost it's almost as if players are a failure if they don't make the NBA because of the marketing. And fortunately for us, the, the Final Four is almost like a, a pinnacle. Uh, or is it even a football where if the final four football teams, if one of them gets blown out, then all you hear is they shouldn't even have been there. And so fortunately for us, there is that plateau of, of being in that last weekend with a chance to win it all. So I think, uh, but, but anyway, um, it, it's, it's great being on with you, Brian. Yes. Great questions. And, and, uh, this, this really, uh, has my mind uh, racing. I'm just laughing because it is funny, the the marketing of it, right? You make it to the Final Four, you're a winner. Uh, but to your point, if you make it to the Final Four and it doesn't go well in football, you're a loser. So I, I challenge everyone to just pay attention to that sort of stuff and, and find your own way. I'm on Twitter X or whatever the heck it's called at Brian Levinson. Uh, and then LinkedIn's the other place I like to be at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Dusty really appreciate you. And, uh, hopefully I can catch a game when I'm down visiting my parents, uh, in the winter. So, uh, wishing you all the best for the season and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The first quality, I'll, I'll say attribute, that I look for is likability. And uh, if they're moody, if they, you don't know what you're going to get every single day, then it would be, it'd be difficult for me to work with them. Um, obviously, you have to, to try to hire guys that have been around success or you've worked with before or been around successful programs because the the feeling that you have of, of being with a winning organization, you're... you're, you're it, it, there are usually some traits that um, are pretty consistent with, with the teamwork, with the, the personality. You know, just there's so much goes into winning, and, and you, you want to be around people that have been around winning programs. And so, and usually they bring an, an inter- interesting dynamic to the equation. Um, but I don't look at it as, as like most people do, even the loyalty piece. I think we should all be loyal to the program. Uh, you're not loyal to me, I'm not loyal to you. We're all loyal to the same thing towards our mission.